As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome back to the latest edition of The Audible. I am Bruce Feldman, joined as always by Stuart Mandel. We are taping this on Tuesday morning, and we're going to get into some some news that Stu was out in front of with a story he reported uh, late Monday afternoon. Uh, I'm going to read your your tweet, Stu, to put it in context. National LGBT groups are urging the Big 12 to drop BYU from consideration over alleged discrimination. Uh you know what? This is definitely a hot button topic. As we've talked about in weeks past, the conference expansion story at Big 12 hits on a lot of different schools and, and draws a lot of eyeballs. I think this was a this was a story that was a curveball in it completely. Um, I'm curious. So how long had you been working on this? Uh, I had started to catch wind of it a couple weeks ago that something might be in the works. And then it was a matter of. Um, you know, continuing to follow up and see if anything was actually going to come of it. You know, it's interesting because nothing that was revealed in either my story or certainly in the letter that was at the center of this, the letter that uh, two groups, Athletes Ally and National Center for Lesbian Rights, uh, co-authored, nothing in it is not already public knowledge. BYU's honor code, which is kind of at the center of this, uh, not kind of, is at the center of this, is published right on its website. But you know, as I started to get into this and, and I would look back, it, it actually was, you know, I couldn't believe that this hadn't come up before in terms of, like you said, all of the endless coverage of Big 12 uh, realignment. Um, you know, we've been speculating for months and certainly within the last month as to possible candidates and BYU is always mentioned toward the top of the list. You would hear references to whether, you know, the BYU not being able to play on Sundays would be an issue. And you would occasionally see reporters write or tweet something to the effect of, you know, are they going to be able to deal with the fact that BYU can be, quote, difficult, which could mean a lot of different things. But as far as I could tell, nobody had really brought up um, what, as you can see now, is a is an extremely polarizing issue um, involving their LGBT policies. All right. So for people who haven't read the story, what is what stands out about 
BYU's policy in this case. I mean, there's other, not every school in the Big 12 is a state institution. Baylor and TCU are, I don't know, I guess we would call them faith-based uh, universities. So what made, in your, in your perspective from, from what you've looked up uh, from their policies and, and their honor code, what, what, what's the difference here? Yeah, that's a great question, one that people have asked a lot, uh, certainly on Twitter in the last 24 hours, you know, why, uh, why single out one religious school and not others? So let's, uh, well, let's start with BYU. So BYU's honor code, which all of its students and all of its students are obligated to follow, uh, its employees are expected to follow, um, has specific language in there that says, um, while not an honor code violation, just to, if you just, uh, you know, say that you're openly gay, basically, if you say that you have a, a same uh, sex attraction, that is not a violation, but acting on it is. And there's a section in it titled homosexual behavior. And it basically lists, you know, it basically says any sort of expression of quote unquote homosexual feelings, holding hands, anything to that effect is an honor code violation. Certainly, um, you know, and it's been well documented, everybody knows, I think, that premarital sex is an honor code violation, regardless of your orientation. But, you know, the difference here is once a um, once a, a straight person gets married, then the honor code is no longer an issue. Uh, same-sex marriage would definitely be an honor code violation because it's a expression of feelings. So in reporting this story, well, for you, you asked about the differences with the other schools. Um, you know, Notre Dame and TCU have uh, specific, uh, you know, published policies that say you cannot discriminate against, uh, you know, any number of groups, but uh, gender, gender identity and sexual orientation are included in that. Uh, so it's really not an issue there. Baylor would be the one that's closest to BYU. And in fact, only, only uh, early last year did Baylor change its code of conduct. Uh, up to that point, it had language very similar to uh, BYU's about homosexual acts. They took that out, uh, so that's no longer a specific uh, violation. Uh, but there is some language in the Baylor uh, Code that doesn't explicitly say, but basically reading between the lines indicates that a same-sex marriage would be uh, in violation of their code. Okay, let me ask you a couple of things. So first of all, uh, I don't know if this is a disclaimer or not. You and I both kind of loathe digging into politics as it relates to to our jobs covering college football. You agree with that? Absolutely. Um, you know, we, we talked talk- about that on here. We we had a discussion a few weeks ago, uh, you know, and we were thinking more in terms of the election. But would you delve into politics on Twitter? And some sports writers do. We were both of the feeling of we should, you know, we don't want to do that because, you know, we don't feel like our audience, first of all, wants to hear that. And second of all, we are fully cognizant of the fact that our audience encompasses um, people of all uh, political leanings. Yeah. And I think there's a couple of distinctions to make here. One, you did not do a column. I think a lot of people outside of the media sometimes get, you know, kind of lump. You wrote a story with, you reported a story, you did a column, somebody does a blog, they all kind of see it under your picture and your headline, your, your name is attached to it. So they think there is a, there is an ad, you're advocating for something or and, not. Yeah. And to be fair, most of what I write uh, for Fox sports and did it as I is opinion, you know, the mailbag is an opinion column. Uh, 
I weighed in with opinion columns about the Baylor um, sexual assault scandal. So I understand that. But yes, this was a straight news story. So beyond that, though, and again, this comes back to my my assertion, we don't, you know, want to talk about politics. In this case, um, it's hard not to kind of touch on it. And, you know, I looked at I retweeted your story when it went up. And so I got, you know, a few or some of the comments that were probably directed at you or at least at the story itself. And, you know, one of the things that I noticed quite a bit of was somebody had tweeted early on about arguing about freedom of religion and, you know, isn't BYU entitled to that right? And I think that this is the one thing I would say on this is BYU is, is certainly free to have that position. It's a private university and, you know, it's, 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 it can have that, that position, but the B, but the big 12 is also free to decide whether it's comfortable or not to do a partnership with someone that, that doesn't feel the same on those issues, or at least in their policies is very different in how they approach it. And so what I would ask you is a couple of things here. One, a couple of years ago, if what you're telling me is, and and I'll be honest, I was not familiar with, you know, it's not like I'm checking schools, honor codes and, and mission statements, but I was not familiar that, that Baylor had, you know, had, had maybe a similar, uh, similar, you know, perspective on it or rules on, on this. But if the Big 12 was comfortable with it, you, whether they knew it or not, I mean, they were in business as, a, as a, uh, an entity that supported Baylor for that long. So why would they, if they make this distinction, is one thing. The other question I have for you, um, and maybe this is, I, we should separate this, but is also... Hold on, I'm going to have to start taking notes to remember all this. <laughs> How much different is this really when a network, whether it's Fox, because we have a Big 12 deal, or ESPN, which definitely airs you know, BYU games, or even teams that have scheduling agreements with BYU? I mean, it, it's a, it seems to me to be a pretty slippery slope on where people are going to draw a line if they're going to draw a line. Okay, there's a lot to get to there. Um, first of all, for people who haven't re- read the letter from Athlete Ally, uh, I think it's important to note that at no point in the letter are they making the point that uh, that they, that BYU shouldn't be allowed to the big be allowed to the Big Twelve because of its beliefs, right? It's it's at no point does it touch on um, having certain beliefs. It's about the policies. It's about the fact that students can be suspended or expelled uh, for having a same-sex relationship. So that's one thing. But even with that, you know, I mean, the reason this story is so sensitive, the reason this story, um, this issue will could become divisive in the Big 12, we don't know exactly, is that you're talking about a conflict that takes place in our society every day, you know, in a far broader sense than just conference realignment, obviously. Freedom of religion, which is constitutionally protected, sometimes goes up against Uh, Other protections, and in this case we're talking about LGBT anti-discrimination protections that are increasingly becoming uh, part of the law throughout our country. Not yet, but, you know, in many parts of our country. And obviously the reason this is a hot-button story, or one of the reasons, is that we've just seen in the last couple of months um, this play out in the sports world. The NBA pulling its all-star game out of North Carolina because of a bill there um, that 
um, you know, these same groups are considered to be discriminatory. And the NCA has uh, enacted a policy um, that they will not stage their championship games going for or their championship events going forward in cities that don't have discrimination protections for LGBT. So given all of that, it kind of speaks uh, is a long way of getting to your question about kind of what's the slippery slope, what's the line here. Um, that that remains to be seen. I mean, I think – can I just read from the email you sent me? Because I feel like you summed this up better than I okay. could. You, you sent me an email when we were talking about this last night, and you kind of said it just now. You know, BYU is free to have its position, its religious position, but the Big 12 is also free to decide whether or not it's comfortable uh, to do a partnership with someone that doesn't feel the same on issues like that. So, yes, the Big 12 is free to decide which schools it does or doesn't want to be affiliated with. And the interesting thing here is, you know, at no point in that letter do they even bring up BYU football. You know, this doesn't really have anything to do with the BYU football program. It has to do with uh, policies that affect the general student body. And so in that letter, they make reference to – let me read the exact language here. Um, in their point that they make that they think that the, the that BYU's policies are contradictory to the Big 12's values, uh, they say currently Big 12 as a conference is overwhelmingly LGBT inclusive. Nine out of ten of your member schools have explicit protections for students based on their sexual orientation. Uh, nine out of ten of your member schools have LGBT resource centers to pro- proactively make their schools safe and welcoming for LGBT people. So nine out of 10, clearly the 10th is Baylor. And you're right. I mean, that'll be a central question that has to be answered here. Um, If, and and it's an if, we don't know whether this will end up being a central issue or not. If a majority of the presidents, or frankly, three of the presidents, because that's all it takes to block somebody, are not comfortable being associated with a university that has these policies, well, then the next question they have to ask is, is it hypocritical of us to do this? when we already have Baylor. Now, I would say that, first of all, as I noted earlier, Baylor has changed its policy, so it's not quite the same as BYU's. But it was very similar at the time they took Baylor in 1996. Um, so Let's, let me stop you on, yeah. on 1996 because that's 20 years ago. And I think even five years ago, the traction these kinds of things get and the the views on these things have changed dramatically, certainly in 20 years, but I think even just in the last I think five within years. the last two years, oh, just general awareness and discussion of these issues has gone up tremendously. I mean, obviously a big moment last year was the Supreme Court legalizing same-sex marriage. Um, I don't – if this exact situation were playing out two years ago – I don't know that a story like this gets much traction. Uh, I think it gets traction right now because of uh, the events we talked about just a little while ago. I mean, you're, this is happening right on the heels of, of the NBA pulling the All-Star game out of North Carolina and the NCAA uh, taking a stance against LGBT discrimination. I think there's also an element of this. And again, social media and Twitter can give you a very false sense of of how a lot of people feel because usually the most vocal are the ones who get the most worked up and you know they're the ones you, you often kind of remember what the reactions are like but you know when you see this kind of there's going to be a backlash to the backlash kind of thing right and I, I think one of the things that gets overused and i kind of roll my eyes about it is 
a lot of, and I think I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, I think a lot of people, you know, complain about this is, you know, the, we're going in the wrong direction because everything's PC and this and that, and you're infringing on other people's rights when you, when you, when you, you know, hold these, you know, p- uh, other people, you're trying to either hold them accountable or responding. And I think what gets lost here is, you know, in this specific case, you know, BYU is a private school. It is allowed to install and have whatever policies, you know, it wants to just the same as, you know, the, the group that, you know, these groups that have signed off on this letter, you know, they're free to have their, their opinion, whether you agree or not with their, with their positions. But when it comes back to the big 12, again, you know, it's up to the big 12 to decide whatever they want to do. They're not telling BYU and maybe, maybe they are, maybe implicitly they are, but they are not telling BYU, you have to change your policies. Right. I mean, I think that's the, that's the part where, you know, it's just like you have freedom of speech, but like, you know, if you or I say some enough things that Fox is very uncomfortable with, we have the right to say them. They don't, we don't have the right to be, to keep our jobs, uh, you know, regardless of, of all that. So, yeah. So, so why don't we do this? I, you know, I did a lot of interviews for this story about people who are, you know, either a part of it or affected by it. And obviously only a few of those quotes made it into the story. You know, we're talking a lot about kind of policies and, and very, um, you know, theoretical things, but I mean, to me, it was most interesting to talk to people who are actually affected by it. Um, so, I mean, first of all, Again, like you just said, they're not telling the school to change their policies, but they're they're you know making the point that they think those policies are discriminatory. So what I talked to a uh, recent BYU student who was openly gay, um, named Sammy Galvez, and he just I asked him to describe to me. And by the way, when I called him, because I felt it was important to get you know here we are, you know this group is going to come down hard on BYU's policies. I don't know how students there actually feel about them. Let's get that voice. For all I know, he was gonna, I was going to call him and he was going to tell me, you know, oh, discriminatory. That's not a fair characterization. But um, it was quite the opposite. So let me just describe or let me just relay what he described as his experience there. And then people can just form their own opinions about whether this is something that should, you know, affect their right to be in the Big 12. And by the way, it's worth saying that explicitly. The reason that the group is taking this stance is – because, you know, a lot of these groups have nothing to do with sports or conference realignment on a regular basis, but they are aware that there's this huge jump in prestige and revenue that would come with BYU joining a Power 5 conference, and the, and the word they kept using specifically to me is they shouldn't be rewarded. They shouldn't be rewarded for, um, you know, for these policies. All right, so this is what it's like to be a gay student at BYU, basically. Um the way he described it is you, you basically live in fear all of the time of being turned into the honor code office and not necessarily even for uh, you know a blatant violation of the honor code. The example he used, he said he got in trouble for this. Uh, he was in a class with uh, – and he started chatting up a student, a male student who he was friendly with, but this male student apparently was homophobic and took the conversation to mean that he was basically hitting on him. You know, he was trying to make him his boyfriend and reported him to the honor code office for that and got called in and investigated for that. And so – and, you know, if it had gone just a little bit beyond that, if he had 
made an advance toward him or um, if the student had seen him on campus holding somebody's hand, you know, he could be suspended or expelled for that. So that's what it's like uh, to, to kind of live under that policy. And that's what the athlete ally and the other groups are specifically calling out as being discriminatory. Yeah, I mean, as you're saying this, I, I'm thinking back to uh, Leach, Mike Leach, uh, is LDS. He went to BYU, and I remember him talking about all the times he got called in for his hair was too long, you know, for violating, getting people reporting him for the honor code. Yeah, um, because there's a yeah, and if you read the honor code, there's I mean, there's it's pretty it's pretty strict about a lot of things. You remember a few years ago, um, Brandon Davies, the basketball player got suspended for the NCAA tournament for, you know, violating the honor code. And the violation was he had premarital sex with his girlfriend. Um, you know, that, and, and there's, you know, obviously other issues as well. But, um, you know, one of the things that the groups brought up is this, uh, the way that this plays out on the campus is that there is this, do this expectation of students to turn in other students. And, uh, and that happens quite a bit. Yeah, look, I don't, I'm, I don't want to judge anybody at BYU or their policies um, on from that standpoint of, you know, that that's very different from how I, you know, remember my college experience and everything, and I'm sure it's probably different from a lot of people's college experience. Well, it's a very unique institution, and and you know, the people that go there are are not necessarily going for the not, they don't pick BYU for the same reason that you know you picked Miami or I picked Northwestern. You know, it's about in, in many cases, in most cases, it's about their faith. And but you know, it is possible to be, and, and obviously this is, can cause a lot of conflict within oneself or within their family. It is possible to be a devout Mormon and also be gay. So uh, this is what kind of plays out for them. But. You know, going back to like the broader picture here, because we're getting really specific. Um, you know, you, you, I would ask you, how will this play out? Does the do the Big Twelve presidents? And by the way, it is the Big Twelve presidents who will make this decision. Would this? How, how much does this come onto their radar, or does it ultimately the fact that BYU has a great football program and a great athletic department and great fan support just you know outweigh these concerns? You know. I honestly have no idea, but I've said this all along. I told you on the podcast and I've said this to you offline. I don't think any of us really know, you know, I look at the Houston case and I've seen people, uh, you know, in the state of Texas, you know, be very supportive and I still will believe it when I see it. Cause you know, there's a quote from Dana Dimmel, who was a former Houston head coach. Who's a, who's an assistant coach at Kansas state and talked very honestly, I thought about, we let Houston in and it's almost like they're going to be a big problem for schools like us because, you know, it's tougher to recruit against them that way. And and I always felt like that was going to matter. Now, I'm saying all that to get to this. I really have no idea how they're going to view this. I think they are going to weigh it in some capacity. But if you asked me without this issue and BYU fans will not like what I'm about to say, um, but if you ask me or at least I don't think they will, without this issue, I think BYU is a slam dunk among the, among the candidates they have. To me, the biggest thing they would have standing against them, if you, especially if, if, as Bob Bowlesby said, they're open to a football-only member, then BYU is one of the two, yeah, like in terms of 
travel wise, it's a challenge, you know, cause they're not so close, you know, proximity wise, but for all the stuff you said before, great football history, um, you know, they can consistently good, very big fans support just on all it's an, it's a national brand that is, that is unique just on that standpoint. I would think they would get in. I have no idea how this is going to play with the, as you said, the presidents. I mean, what do you, am I, am I wrong or where, where do you, you know? What do you- yeah. I mean, first of all, it's important to note that the dynamic of the big 12 is different than some other conferences. And it's been this way, you know, going back to Dan Beebe and, and his predecessors, you know, for example, in the big 10, Jim Delaney sets the policy, Jim Del- whatever Jim Delaney wants to do, there's kind of a he's built up enough cachet that the schools are going to follow his lead, right? So, you know, it wasn't the Big Twelve schools or the Big Ten schools that decided to invite Rutgers and Maryland. That was a Jim Delaney initiative. It's kind of the opposite in the Big Twelve. Bob Bowlesby, I don't know exactly how much influence he carries, but at the end of the day, he is perform he, he is performing the president's marching orders. So the president's told him on July nineteenth at that meeting. Okay, we want to pursue this. Go talk to the candidates, which is, you know, from all accounts, what he's doing. He hasn't been any more specific than that. And so it's those 10 university presidents that will make this decision. And, you know, they are presidents of campuses that have LGBT students. And, you know, how concerned are they about that? Again, we don't know. And it's like you said, like we as sports writers, we know a lot of ADs. You know, maybe you have a relationship with Bob Bowlesby. But we don't know the Big 12 presidents. I don't, I don't know any sports writers have relationships with the Big 12 presidents. So it's hard to predict exactly what they're doing. But the more this plays out, here's the scenario I could see happening. And I'm not saying that this is what's happening. It could see happening. It seems to me that the three schools that are going to end up getting the most consideration are Houston, Cincinnati, and BYU. And so if you're going to discount my, my Fred Smith Big, big money, big influence. I think, yeah, I, I don't think at the end of the day, Memphis is going to ha- have as much support as those. Because really, it's, it's about who do you have support from. And I don't think they're going to have having that kind of support. So if it's if it is if that is correct and those three and then if the Big 12 decides to go to 12 and not 14 and not bring football only members in, then it becomes a bit of a fight to the death. How do they narrow those three down to two? And. I mean, first of all, I think Cincinnati would almost be the safest bet just because – and this kind of says a lot about the state of Big 12 expansion that the best thing I can say there is that they have the least baggage. You know, they there's there aren't any of these kind of issues coming up with Cincinnati. And they're a travel partner for West Virginia right. who's an outlier right no, now. No, I'm not saying they don't have things to offer. They do. But if you're going to some sort of tiebreaker scenario, if that ends up happening – with Houston, you have the issue of what Dana Dimmel said. Will will bringing in Pete, our friend Pete Thamel wrote about this today. Would would bringing Houston in make it harder for the current schools to win football games? Yes, yes. You you, you know Texas has been very supportive, but maybe you know Texas. Texas has a different issue though, and this I said this a, while, a little while back. Texas, I use the example Texas Tech. I will use the example Oklahoma State. Texas is going to beat them in recruiting for the majority of the time, if not like 95% of the time, if they want a kid really bad. Whereas Houston compared to Texas Tech or TCU in this case, let's use TCU as a perfect example. TCU is just came into the league. They've had a lot of success. They've leveraged it. TCU now I think is on every bit of the level playing field, if not more uh, because of proximity than let's say Texas Tech 
or some of these other schools that are not Texas or Oklahoma. And I think Houston would have a similar opportunity there. I agree. I I, I felt from the beginning that I thought Houston wouldn't get in because of that. But then all the Texas, both the University of Texas and the governor and everybody got involved. And then you started to think, well, even if a Kansas state or an Oklahoma state feels that way, are they willing to go against Texas? Because at the end of the day, the Big 12 is only going to survive if Texas and Oklahoma are happy. So there's that issue. And then there's this issue with BYU that we're talking about right now. So if it's three schools vying for two spots, what would be the thing that that ends up eliminating the third school? And maybe maybe it's concerns about BYU, whether they're actual concerns about the policies or more just concerns about the publicity, the bad publicity that's coming with it. We'll see. Um, of course, at the end of the day, the Big 12 could come out a month from now and say that they're adding Cincinnati and Houston and not BYU and never have to explain why. So we may never know. Yeah, I'm I'm curious to see how this how this unfolds. It's it's very complicated. And I think it was complicated before yesterday and I think it probably got even more complicated or it got messier. Um I look, Sue, I don't know if there's a great there's not much of a way to, to uh transition out of that, but let's do that. You know, why don't gonna... we transition out of it with a word from our sponsor? Okay. All right. So today, the Audible is brought to you by Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans, which proudly supports the Audible. Rocket Mortgage brings the mortgage approval process into the 21st century. Fast, powerful, and completely online, Rocket Mortgage has taken all of the complicated, time-consuming parts of applying for a mortgage out of the equation. Hate searching through stacks of old files and paperwork? With Rocket Mortgage, you can easily share your bank statements and pay stubs at the touch of a button helping you get approved in minutes for a custom mortgage solution that's been tailored to your unique financial situation. And even better, with Rocket Mortgage, you can do all of this on your phone or tablet. It's a quick online process that you can manage from the convenience of your couch. So if you're looking to refinance your mortgage or buy a home, check out Rocket Mortgage today at quickenloans.com backslash audible. Stu, you know who doesn't have to worry about mortgages? Gary Patterson. <laughs> Gary Patterson just got a new deal that will take him to 2022. Uh, I think it's you would agree with It's funny you say that because I remember being around him at the meetings in Phoenix a few years ago, and he was really stressed out because he was building a house in Fort Worth, and you know that was kind of consuming his life. They were you know, building a house from scratch, but go ahead. Yeah. Well, it's worked out pretty good for, for the folks around TCU. Uh, so he gets a he gets a new deal. A, I think he is very well deserving. I know you do too. We're going to get to that in a second. Uh, he's led them to five top ten finishes in the past eight years. You know how many they had in the previous forty years before he took over? Tell me, zero. So wow. that's that's a heavy lift, especially when you've transitioned up to a much tougher league. Uh, and so with that, Stu unveils his top twenty coaches rankings. And you have Gary Patterson in the top three. Was this what was the toughest part of this of this list? And we'll get into yours specifically. And we should note that you know this went up on FoxSports.com Tuesday, and this is part of a week long series we'll be doing. You will be chiming in with some of your own lists as well about the best. Yes, we're taking the John Oliver journalism mantra to heart by unloading a lot of <laughs> lists that you guys. 
Well, if we were really taking the John Oliver, uh, we would be writing about puppies instead of uh, college football coaches. But um, the hardest part, so Nick Saban, number one, Urban Meyer, number two. I agree on both of those, by the way. Gary Patterson, number three. Mark D'Antonio, number four. Jim Harbaugh, number five. To be honest, I would say, other than maybe some slight reordering, the top 10 was not that difficult. It was the next 10, where you start to get into coaches who... And that's where I think you've screwed up. Okay, well, we can get into that. I mean, you know, there was a moment where I had one guy 12th, and then I thought maybe he should be 16th, and then, you know, and vice versa. I had guys who, you know, didn't ultimately end up making the list, who going into it I thought would be on the list. Let's go ahead and give 6 through 10 as well. Jimbo Fisher, Florida State, number 6. David Shaw, Stanford, number 7. Dabo Swinney from Clemson, number 8. Bob Stoops, number 9. And Brian Kelly, number 10. Okay, Stu. All right. Now, I, your top five is, would be similar to my top five. I think I would have maybe Jim Harbaugh a little higher, uh, but I would also have Mark D'Antonio and Gary Patterson in the top five. The part where you've really screwed up well, is— Well, let me, let me just ask you about that real quick. Yeah. You know, I immediately heard from the Michigan fans who are aghast that I would have Mark D'Antonio ahead of Jim Harbaugh. And I think if you were taking Jim Harbaugh's NFL career into consideration, you would have to have him— you know, no lower than third. But in terms of college accomplishments to this point, I, you know, especially when you put those two up head to head, Mark Antonio, five eleven win seasons in the last six years, two Mark big Antonio, ten titles. Yeah, he's great again in big games. I think against like top three opponents, there's a crazy number. I want to say he's like six and two or something. But I would argue that what Jim Harbaugh did taking Stanford, which is arguably the worst power conference team in the country, and within four years turning it into a powerhouse. Uh, trumps anything we see on this list in uh, of the top five, that accomplishment. And he went into Michigan, and they had been, uh, you know, a, a team that was struggling to make a bowl game, and he turned them into a team that, that won 10 games, smashed Florida in the bowl game in the state of Florida. Um, I think he's made Michigan very nationally relevant again in a hurry. And I do think you should – factor in you're talking about coaches i think what he did show with the 49ers turning a team that had been spinning its wheels for a long time and getting them to the super bowl in a hurry i don't think you'd entirely dismiss that either well you can't entirely dismiss it but at the same time you know then would you have to hold the him, um, nick saban's dolphins tenure against him uh you know they're they're different uh that's a good point they're different sports so you know, this is the list going into 2016 i mean also nick if, saban by the way in fairness was not lou holtz with the jets bad Older reference lost on younger podcast hosts. Lou Holtz sucked with the Jets. Okay. There's, there's your qualifier. Um, okay. okay, but yeah, let's... so yeah, basically, this is the list going into 2016. If Jim Harbaugh goes out and wins the national championship this year or the Big Ten title, we, you know, we probably revisit this order a year from now. Yeah. Okay. So, I noticed when you did your original list, which you sent to me, and I almost like fell off an ellipse. That, that was a. You shouldn't bring that up. That was a. Okay. Fine. Well, was, I know that wasn't the final version. Okay, well, you know who wasn't there and who wasn't in the top 10? Bill Snyder. Mm-hmm. And you should be fucking ashamed of yourself that Bill Snyder's not <laughs> that on there. This is the second straight podcast you've dropped an F-bomb. We're gonna ha- How soon until iTunes puts that little explicit label next to our podcast? I would love the idea that Stu Mandel has an explicit, <laughs> explicit <laughs> language podcast. You know I'm a huge Bill Snyder fan. Little known fact after You're not a huge one if you don't have him in the top ten. Well, I want to. In my defense, a few years ago, after he took them to that 11-win season, 
uh, where they were undefeated. Which 11 win season? He took them to about seven of them. The 2012 season when they were undefeated very late into the year and they went to the Fiesta Bowl. I wrote an essay on SI.com advocating that he should be Sportsman of the Year. Uh, it was just, you know, on top of an already remarkable, you said, you know, um, you know, Harbaugh re- rebuilding Stanford. What about Bill Snyder rebuilding Kansas State? When I, Not even rebuilding, like rebuilding, building building. Kansas State. Yeah. Kansas State was horrible before that. that being, and by the way, um, to, you know, also to his credit, you throw in two years of, of a Ron Prince debacle. Not only that, like he almost he almost like salted the place because he loaded up on on guys who you had to like wean out of the program. So again, I think what he did is remarkable there. I think what he's I did a game last year where they were playing with their fifth team quarterback on the road at Oklahoma State who was undefeated, and they were beating them. And if it wasn't for the refs, they would have beaten them. So you're preaching to the choir. I love Bill Snyder, but so why did you not have? Why didn't you love him enough to put him in the top ten? I almost put him in the top ten. I actually debated. But you didn't. Still. I debated didn't. very hard. Um, like, like I say, the the, um, the criteria here. Hold on. There's an echo. Look, I like Brian Kelly a lot. I think he's a terrific coach. I would put Bill Snyder ahead of Brian Kelly. I'd have a hard time, but look, Bob Stoops is a protege of Bill Snyder. So I just um, want to read uh, something I wrote right at the top, which is, note, I place much more emphasis on recent performance than career achievements. If we were evaluating these coaches on their career achievements, like Bill Snyder, would he be number one? Would he be right behind Saban? I mean, he, you know, he's he's the most accomplished. He's a Hall of Fame coach. Well, if you're evaluating on recent achievements, I'm going to call take issue with the guy right behind him. Chris Peterson, who I think is a great coach, shouldn't even be in the top top twelve. Then, well, yes. If, if we were doing this list, give me credit for that one too. Yeah, and that's why he's twelfth and not. I can remember doing one of these lists during the height of his Boise State run, and I had him in the top five. I mean, he was he he had it rolling. He was that respected as a coach, and I don't think he's forgotten how to coach. Obviously, the fact that we have Washington, both of us, very high in our yeah. preseason rankings is you're getting very to that. Well, because you're jumping down my throat <laughs> over things that I have put a lot of thought into. I mean, Chris Peterson is 12th as opposed to 6th because they've ha- he hasn't had a great start to his Washington tenure. Bill Snyder is 11th instead of top 5 or whatever you want to have him because since that 11-win season in 2012, they've gone 8-5, and 9-4, and 6-7. And, and they're picked to go 8th in the Big 12 this year, though I think that's going to be wrong. So, you know, could I have put him ahead of Brian Kelly? Possibly. Uh, Brian Kelly's been in a national championship game more recently, had a great season last year. Um, you know, to me, those were interchangeable, but I would not have considered putting Snyder above a Dabo Swinney or Jimbo Fisher who have, you know, had teams in the national title game very recently and, and obviously in Jimbo Fisher's case, won one. Mm. Okay. What are, your other, what are your other big beefs? Should we read the, uh, let's see here. Let's read the rest of it. Um, these aren't my beefs. These are the rest of your. Let me read your list. Okay. Uh, after Bill Snyder, way down at number 11, <laughs> you have Chris Peterson at 12. You have Les Miles at 13. You have Bobby Petrino at 14. You have Kenny Matalolo at 15. David Cutcliffe at 16. Kyle Whittingham, 17. 
Hugh Freeze at 18, Tom Herman after one huge year at 19, and then you have Dan Mullen at 20. So, you know, I don't, I can't take issue with really. I, I think all these guys are deserving. I mean, to be somewhere there, Ken Niamatololo. I'm glad you have him on the list. To be honest, I'm not sure I would have had him in my top 20, but I probably would 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 regret maybe not having him there because what I think he's done is. You know, really good at a tough place. I mean, at the service academy, which is in this day and age, increasingly, you know, if you look at the struggles Army has had, I mean, it's very hard to win at a service academy. He's yeah, now Troy least... Calhoun wins at the uh, service yeah, academy too. So uh, um, eight, eight I... games, they won at least eight games, seven of his eight seasons. You know, who I, I think thought last have... year. Sorry, <laughs> last year uh, I thought they would take a step back, moving up into a conference for the first time, and instead they won eleven games and won their division and beat Pitt in a bowl game. You know who I think you have who should be much higher? Okay. David Cutcliffe. I thought you might say that. Yeah, um, I mean. I, yeah, look, I have a lot of respect. You know, one of the things that's tough about doing these lists is, you know, the, like, for instance, there are people that respond on Twitter who basically think you should just rank them based on whether or not they won national championships. Obviously, the expectation level or the, um, you know, you mentioned Gary Patterson and, and what he's done and how much better that is than their his, their recent history. Same with D'Antonio at Michigan State. You know, before David Cutcliffe got to Duke, they were the worst team. They were team. awful. Yeah, yeah. They, they were awful for many, many years. And now, you know, I think it's a reflection of him that they've been to four straight bowl games. If you pick Duke to go to a bowl game this year, nobody would even bat an eye. Yeah, I mean, it's just – and the the respect he has – I mean, I had uh, kind of comment on this yesterday, on Monday. You know, they just went into Southern California and beat UCLA and USC for a player that they – for a quarterback that both schools really wanted. And the reason why they were able to do that is because – largely because of David Cutcliffe's re- reputation. So and, here are the last few guys that I – you would say just missed – uh, in fact, I had that in the file I turned in, but did not make it onto the site. Um, and I will read them, and you can tell me if you would have bumped somebody on the list for any of these guys. Um, Brett Bielema was one of them. Mike Gundy was another. Pat Fitzgerald. Paul Johnson at Georgia Tech. And now at Miami, Mark Richt. Um, I wouldn't bump anybody for that list. I think you know some of those guys like... You know, Pat Fitzgerald a little to me feels like Ken Niamatololo and just like I think he's largely underrated. Um, now, Pat Fitzgerald has a more of a national profile. You know, like I think I think you and I had this comment. We just uh, at the Big Ten media days, he's just very impressive whenever he's in front of people. Um, but, yeah, I think he's he's definitely deserving. Um, I don't know. Who, I mean. When I went through the list and see who you have, I mean, Mark Richt won a lot of games at Georgia. I think, you know, it's no secret I said this a, a while back. I still think Georgia's been an underachieving program there. Right. Um, okay, there's a name uh, There's a name in, in FBS college football coaching who has a staggering winning percentage. But I think towards your framework of, well, it didn't happen. You know, it happened in the NFL. We're going to discount it. Um, who would this other guy be? Yeah, I think I know who you're referring to. Would it be the uh, current head coach at Buffalo? Yes, Lance Leipold, one fourteen and thirteen. Wow! Now he only he only went five and seven last year at Buffalo. So were seven of the thirteen losses at Buffalo? They were. Jeez, 
Tell people where he coached before. And, and He was at Wisconsin Whitewater where he was just filing his nails with national title trophies. I mean, it's just insane what they, what they did there. Um, you know, and towards that end, look, Craig Bull won a ton of games before he got to Wyoming, and it's, you know. Yeah, I think we just have to wait and see what they do at the FBS level. Now, two names, and, and this is going to be the end of our discussion about this, but two names that, if this had been a year ago, would have definitely been on my list, one of them particularly high probably, and it shows how quickly uh, things can turn against you, Gus Malzahn and Kevin Sumlin. Uh, yeah, I could definitely see that. I could definitely see that. Um, I still think Gus Malzahn is one of the best offensive minds to come through college football in a long time. And he appeared in a national title game three years ago. So you would seemingly think he should be on the list. But again, recent performance, they've really struggled the past two years. And I, frankly, I'm worried for them this year. Um, it is not a good start to the season when your number one running back gets kicked off the team and I don't know if you've been following this. He's kind of mouthed off about, um, you know, he went public with his grievances about how he was treated there. Then there have been stories, you know, and then countering that, people have leaked stories about how he basically chronically, you know, mi- didn't follow their rules and missed meetings. Then there was an incident. So, and it's the second straight year, something like, you know, last year was Duke Williams. Uh, I just feel like maybe something's a little off with the culture at Auburn right now. Uh, speaking of culture, a name flashed in my head when you when you said the uh, you know if you had done this a year ago with Kevin Sumlin and Gus Malzahn, what if you had done this four months ago? Hmm. Where would you have had Art Bryles? Great question. I think very very high. Probably see now this is going to rile up TCU and Baylor fans. He would either be. He would have been third or fourth. I don't know if he would have been ahead of or behind Gary Patterson, but he would have been right there. Wow. Yeah, I mean, is you know, we talk about you know the amazing job Bill Snyder's done, the amazing job David Cutcliffe's done at Duke. Baylor was the worst team in the Big Twelve for fifteen years, and you know, and they reached the point where they were winning back-to-back titles and winning eleven, twelve games a year, scoring fifty, sixty points on people. There's no question that from a purely football X and O's perspective that he was one of the best coaches in college football. Okay. Let me give you a couple other names that you did not mention. I'm curious where you, where you fit on them. James Franklin. They talk about what he did at Vandy. He had him back to back top 25 since he's left. They have kind of fallen back off the map. I know he has struggled some at Penn state. My sense, my feeling come when he got hired by Penn State was that he would have a chance to, that there was, based on what he did at Vanderbilt, there was a very good chance he would, you know, emerge as somebody who would be on this list um, at his time at Penn State. They've struggled so far. I do think you have to take into consideration the effect of the sanctions in that. I think this is really the first year where he'll have a full-strength roster. So, and, and even then, full-strength in terms of numbers, but, you know, they weren't bringing in the kind of recruiting classes Penn State would normally bring in um, those first couple of years when the bowl ban was still in effect. So I don't want to keep making excuses for him, but I just I don't I couldn't justify him being on the list yet. You know, I would put him do something uh, in Penn State. I would put him up there in the same reign with Brett Bielema. Not that there there are a lot of parallels, but in terms of a guy who, based on his previous stop. Certainly, I think is deserving of the top 20. I mean, look, what he's done, what he did at Vandy was a lot more impressive than what Dan Mullen's done at Mississippi State. 
I mean, it's Vandy for crying out loud. Jackie yeah, I Sherlock. I think any success. I remember people in the SEC, fans of other schools, used to try to um, diminish what Franklin had done by pointing out, like, when they had those nine-win seasons, who the nine wins were against. I don't care. I mean, nobody had done that at Vanderbilt in a long, 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 long time. And nobody and, – and Derek Mason hasn't been able to sustain it. So, again, I think what he did there is more impressive than what some guys you have on the top 20 list. The other two names I would throw at you, Rich Rodriguez – and he's not even in your just missed the cut group. He had three t- top 10 seasons in his last three years at West Virginia. Now he struggled in a big way at Michigan. No kidding him on that. Went from three to five to seven wins. Got fired. His first three years at Arizona were the best three-year run that Arizona football has ever had. Yeah, I mean, he merited consideration. Mike Leach certainly merited consideration. You know, one interesting one you and I talk about offline who doesn't appear anywhere on this list is Mark Helfrich, who coached in the national title game two years ago. And yet I think we both agreed that no, he would not be on a list of the top 20 coaches. No. And I I think some of that is just the expectations have gotten so high there at, at Oregon. And I think a little is if, if I had told you going into this year right now that you and I both thought of, Oregon, the way we would think of a team that's going to be like a top preseason top seven team, I think you might have them differently. But I think both of you have us, both of us have Oregon this year as like a fringe top 25 team. Right. So that probably influences it. Because, like we said, there's not, just not a lot of body of work to go on. Whereas I think Tom Herman, me more than you, but think Tom Herman's going to have another huge year. If it was a case where it's like Justin Fuente, where you know, he did a really good job, but we're like, okay, the team he's coaching now is probably not going to be a factor in the national title chase. It kind of influences the list some. Right. right. Do you want to give people a little tease? Because on Wednesday, after this podcast goes up, and maybe you, only you're only now listening to it, um, you will have done your list of the top 20 players going into the yes. season. Yes. Uh, it's a tough list. So let me ask you, who would you be your top five players? Yeah, I don't know that I have the exact order hashed out, but I think you would have to have Deshaun Watson, Christian McCaffrey, uh, Leonard Fournette. I'm trying to think of a defensive guy here. Miles Garrett. What about, you know who I think gets no, does not get enough love, is especially when people talk about Heisman contenders for this year, is Dalvin Cook. He's, he's unbelievable. He is in my top six. So... Um, should we go ahead and tease who your number one is? Uh, yeah, because sure. we have a little, because we can have a little conversation about. Yeah, go ahead. So my number one guy. Uh, I don't know. I when I look back at my Heisman list, I I thought there were three guys to me that going into this year that that were going to be in any order, and that was going to be Leonard Fournette, Deshaun Watson, and Christian McCaffrey. I think they're all set up for huge years this year again. I think actually Deshaun Watson, when you look at getting getting Mike Williams back, a little more seasoning in the offensive line, the fact that he's bulked up a little bit because they run him more again, big games. I think all that, and that's a those are all reasons why I think they're going to win the national title. Whoa, that's our first. Uh, I can't believe you sprung that one at the. Uh... You sprung your your first national title prediction in the 52-minute mark of this podcast. Well, I'm trying to keep people on. I mean, usually Rob Stone's about the only one who stays on for the whole hour or so. All right. Well, 
we'll have to revisit your Clemson national championship pick at some other point. So your number one is player Christian McCaffrey, and then Watson two, Watson two, and then Fournette three. Yeah, I mean it's it's a tough call. Now if if we were this was the end of last season, we both agreed Christian McCaffrey had the best season in college football. I mean, arguably one of the best seasons in the history of college football, and deserved the Heisman Trophy. But if we're doing a more subjective, who's the best player in the country? Do I go McCaffrey or do I go Watson? I, you know, my guess is by the end of this season, we're going to be talking about Deshaun Watson as that guy. I just think he's a just an except. I mean, quarterbacks first of all get tend to get that recognition more than running backs, and you know, I think he's future number one pick. I think it took until the end of it took until the national title game for people to truly appreciate. What not just what a talent he is, but what a great passer he is. Because whenever there's a dual threat quarterback, people tend to focus on the running first. And the fact of the matter is, even if he did not run for a single yard, he's a tremendous passer. There's been a lot of uh, I've noticed a lot of clips going around lately from the NFL draft writer types of just like clips of him from certain games last year. Like I can't believe he made this throw, and so on. Of course, I also can't believe that McCaffrey makes some of the runs that he does. So. Uh, it's a toss-up. I think if I were making a list, I'd go Watson 1, McCaffrey 2. Okay. The, uh, uh, and I'll look at this without teasing too much of my list. The most underrated great player in college football in your mind is who? The most underrated great player. Like somebody who's already done it or somebody who I think yeah, is about somebody, to have so, a Somebody who's already done it but you think will have a great year but just like, man, we, you know, we should be talking about him more. I was watching, I just happened to turn on ESPNU when they were showing last year's Michigan-Michigan State game, The uh, which, you know, was worth staying in for the, uh, just because I could watch the ending a million times. Anyway, the job Jordan Lewis did covering uh, Aaron Burbridge, who was obviously such a great receiver for Michigan State last year, was pretty unbelievable. I think he will emerge over the course of this season as, you know, I know Desmond King's back and he won the Thorpe Award, but it's possible that Within his own conference, by the end of this year, he might not be considered the best cornerback. That's that's fair. Um, he only gave up one touchdown last year, and this is in the story he had mentioned to me that it was against of all teams, Oregon State. Uh, it was funny. I actually went back and watched the play. He said it was kind of a little bit of a miscommunication, and I, watching the play, I was like, I was going to write, you know, the touchdown he gave up was in a was uh, in a meaningless, you know, in a blowout. But it was actually Oregon State led that game seven nothing before they lost. I think it was thirty five to seven. So uh, uh, that was you're saying he the seven nothing was the touchdown he gave up. Yeah, it was on a deep ball into the corner of the end zone. It was a, actually a great pass by Seth Collins. Um, but again, this was uh, just a, a just kids turn out to be a great player. I mean, he came in at one hundred fifty nine pounds. He told me now he's, you know, almost 30 pounds heavier and, you know, his teammates, teammates not only love him, but also DJ Durkin, the old defensive coordinator there is now at uh, Maryland, just raves about how competitive he was and everything that, you know, kind of raised everybody else's level. So, yeah, uh, you'll see Jordan Lewis on that list. My my name that I was going to say, who I think is really, really underrated um, that people don't talk enough about. And he's on a program that's probably getting overhyped. And that is Derek Barnett from Tennessee. You know, the SEC is loaded with great defensive linemen. You know, you had a bunch at Alabama. You obviously have Miles Garrett, who's going to get a lot of headlines. But when you look at the production Derek Barnett has, 
Uh, I thought this number is pretty amazing. In 16 SEC games, we're not talking about games against like, you know, FCS opponents or, or you know, lower level players. 16 SEC games in his college career, 17 sacks, 27 tackles for losses. Yeah, no, I can remember going into last season, he and Miles Garrett were basically mentioned pretty much in the same breath. And then, you know, as the season played out, he didn't necessarily get nearly the same attention. But, you know, he's a really good player. I would also say, and this is one of the many reasons why, you know, I, I can't not be high on Tennessee despite my lack of faith in Butch Jones, um, is that Barnett's playing opposite another really good pass rusher in Corey Vereen. Yeah, they uh, they're deep at defensive line now. I was, somebody told me there they have like eight defensive ends there that they think can really play, and so they've upgraded that. The other big thing with him, and I know this is from spending some time in there in the spring with Bob Shoup, the new defensive coordinator. They talk about his leadership and his level of accountability and what he holds the other players to uh, is big, and I think that's why I'm a believer that. Tennessee will live up to this hype this year. So I don't want to go too far down the road because I've already thrown out the, the crazy uh, preseason Clemson shot. But um, Well, let me ask you this. You love to catch me off guard with questions like this. Let me throw one at you. Who would you say might, is a guy who did not make your list? Maybe he's in the just missed, maybe not even that. Who you would not be, who you would not be surprised if by the end of the season, if you redid this list, would be in your top five? Uh... That's a good question. So it's somebody who's not in my top 20, but... I mean, could theoretically win the Heisman, because let's face it, it's rare that a, a Watson, Cornette, McCaffrey actually, you know, follows it up with actually winning the Heisman. The voters tend to like the next the next great thing. Even though I have, have Baker Mayfield in my top five, I didn't have Samaj P. Ryan in my top 20. He was somebody I considered... It wouldn't shock me if he ended up having such a big year and they, you know, Oklahoma went to play, you know, went undefeated and played, played, you know, went to the playoff that he could be a guy who could be, a, you know, have a shot, a good shot at the Heisman. His numbers are pretty amazing. He's got good hands. I mean, I know Joe Mixon's going to get carries too and going to get a lot of touches, but he's you somebody know, I would put in there. You know what's amazing is that Samaji P. Ryan ran for more yards in a football game than any player in history. And as I recall, did it in three quarters and yet is not talked about like a Leonard Fournette or a McCaffrey, you know, or Dalvin Cook or, or Dalvin even, Cook. you know, look in the Pac-12 Royce Freeman. And I talked to their coaches last week. I mean, they talk about all the things he does beyond just, you know, carrying the football. They talk about how great he is in blitz pickup and all these other things. Um, and he's a guy that probably doesn't get enough attention. I mean, I really do think there's there's so many good running backs out there. It and, really is does feel like it's going to be the year of the running back. I mean, looking at your list, um, the running backs stand out to me. We didn't even mention Nick Chubb, right? Yeah, Nick Chubb obviously has a chance to be, if you know, assuming he comes back healthy, one of if not the best running backs. You mentioned Royce Freeman. Um, the question I just asked you, my answer was going to be. And I don't think he would win the Heisman because of the position he plays. But You're going to say Anthony Walker from Northwestern. No, I'm not, although he's a great player. Um, because of both his talent and because of the team he plays for, Calvin Ridley. That's a good guess. I mean, that's a, a good uh, suggestion. Because he will be, you know, Lane Kiffin likes to lean on his most reliable target. He's got 
inexperienced running backs this year. But he does have a really big tight end who's going to get catching. I think, true. and they, you know, don't over, don't overlook Garrick Dieter, who caught like a hundred passes in the MAC. I mean, he actually can, he can really play. I think he will help them. They have our Darius Stewart and Robert Foster. I, I know what you're saying about Lane because I mean, USC definitely had some other, you know, another good receiver, and still he would, he would feel more feed Marquise Lee or you know whatever, but. Well, and he really fed Amari Cooper two years ago. Yeah, but I just think Amari Cooper was so much better than the other guys. While I think Calvin Ridley's better than their other guys, I don't think it's a huge difference to the same degree. I could be wrong, but but I you know I think that's a good that's a good one. Um, I thought it was interesting. You mentioned you know obviously they have a great tight end in OJ Howard. Um, Alabama had its fan day the other day where the you know fans can come onto the field and and all the players are sitting there and you know you can get their autograph and OJ Howard apparently had the longest autograph line. How often do you think a tight end is the most popular player on a team? Yeah, it hasn't happened too many times and I'm just trying to go back and think like you know Kellen Winslow was Miami's best player, you know, after they lost to Ohio State in the title game. I can't remember too many other tight ends who were like, you know, kind of not bigger than the bigger than the the team, but just kind of felt like that. Yeah. Um. So that was fun. We talked about a lot of lists. You snuck your national championship pick in. Maybe we can uh, revisit that at some point. Um, the BYU story. Uh, we'll have to see how that progresses. Uh, if you haven't read the story. Or the letter, the actual letter that went to the Big 12. You can find both of those on my Twitter feed at SL Mandel. And the uh, lists that we're talking about, um, my best co- 20 best coaches went up on Tuesday on FoxSports.com. Your uh, 20 best players will go up Wednesday. We will also have later in the week um, most important newcomers will be one of the lists. And... I think it's okay to tease this, right? Like, we're not worried that some competitor is going to beat us to the punch. On no, Andy Staples will not be munching on a <laughs> Slim Jim going, wait, this is a great idea. I got to do this. And the 20 best games of the season. So <laughs> look forward to that. And we will rejoin you, um, you know, as we always do later in the week. Usually this would have been on Monday, but knowing what was coming, we wanted to hold it till Tuesday. So we will come back to you again later in the week. As always, if you enjoy the Audible, please subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Tell your friends to do so as well. And we will answer emails soon, so please send your questions to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. We'll see you next time.